As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Justin Coletti of Sonic Scoop. Thanks for joining me for this week's episode of the Sonic Scoop podcast. And today we're going to be talking about a very important topic, how your ears can lie to you and what to do about it. Why would they do that? Our ears, we trust them so much. Can we trust them? Well, a lot of the times you can trust your ears and there are people who develop an amazing ability to hear minute differences that they can demonstrate that they can hear. And it's a big deal, but our ears will also play tricks on us in a number of ways. And today we're going to go over some of those most common tricks our ears can play on us, what to do about them, how to avoid them, how to work around them. Because we are all mortal. All of our hearing is imperfect. All of our mental processing about what we listen to is imperfect. And we're going to have to develop some workarounds no matter who we are. And the best people working in the industry have just developed really good workarounds to some of the funny things about the way we process things in hearing. And I'll tell you that this episode was inspired to do it because I recently did an episode about ultra high resolution audio and why I think it doesn't really make sense, especially not for consumer playback and probably not for production either. You can hear my full arguments in some other episode. I promise we're not going to go into big detail on that today. But a thing that came up sometimes from people who, who really do believe in high-res audio is they would say things to me along the lines of, well, maybe you can't hear the difference and someone like you who can't hear the difference with super high-res audio would come to a conclusion like this. But us people who can hear the difference, we know. And it's funny because I, I was for, for much of, you know, uh, my life in that latter camp. And at a certain point, I realized I could hear the difference. I can hear so many little differences that I can even hear differences that don't actually exist. And that is one of the problems with our hearing that we're going to get into because our ears play tricks on us. And this is not to say that we can't hear extremely subtle differences. Like, there are differences between different converters. You can go out there and listen to different high-end A to D converters, and they can sound different from one another. And people actually can distinguish that on double-blind tests. There are even, like, the same converter, if it has certain anti-aliasing filter designs, could sound different at different sample rates. And it's not actually the sample rate that's making the difference. It's probably the filters and other parts of the design that's making that difference. But there are these really subtle differences that people actually can hear and can demonstrate they can hear in a way that's just incontrovertible and you can't argue with it. But the other thing that happens 
is the exact opposite of that, where we hear differences that aren't there. Because, I've said this before and I'll say it again, no matter how powerful our ears are and we train our ears to be, no matter how powerful our ears can become, our minds are even more powerful still. And specifically, the stories we tell ourselves are even more important still. And I want to tell you a great story or two or three that relate to this that hopefully will be resonant with you and hopefully I'll give you some practical ideas about how you can avoid some of the pitfalls that lead us to potentially making bad decisions or spend too many too much time making decisions that don't matter and don't help us and sometimes actually even hurt us. So I think this is going to be a good episode. Let's get into it before we do the briefest of shout outs to our sponsors who include you. How do you sponsor? By smashing the like button. If you haven't already, if you're on the YouTube or Facebook version of this, checking out the video. If you're on one of the audio-only formats like Spotify or Apple Podcasts or something like that, consider giving us a rating and review. It really does help. Remember to like, subscribe, hit notifications, bells, all that good stuff. Our other big sponsors, again, Sound Toys. They've been sponsoring this podcast since the beginning. Go get the Sound Toys bundle. If you don't have it already, Sound Toys 5 is absolutely amazing. You can try out anything they make for free for 30 days over at SoundToys.com. Last two quick mentions. Are you still with me? Here we go. Focusrite. Talking into a lovely Claret interface right now. They make awesome bang for the buck stuff. They also have this really cool stuff for users called the Plugin Collective, where they're giving out new plugins like every other month. So definitely check that out. And they actually come with a lot of software as well, but just great bang for the buck interfaces from their low-end Scarlet series all the way up to the high-end RedNet. And last, certainly not least, new sponsor on this month is Arturia. I've been using Arturia SoftSense since, my goodness, like the early 2000s, I think. I, if, they were making some of the first analog soft synths that sounded like analog and good. And now they've just come out with the latest iteration of their pigment synthesizer, which is absolutely incredible. It's an additive synthesizer for those of you who want to make really crazy far out sounds and not just have one of their great analog emulations. You got to check out pigments. It's one of these really forward looking, extremely flexible synths. Okay. Now that we're done with all the sponsor stuff, let's get into some of these stories why your ears can lie to you, how your ears can lie to you, and what to do about it. So I want to tell you a story about this thing about hearing differences that aren't there. First, I'll tell you the most relatable and most obvious story, which is I've had this experience, you all have, of whether it's on a physical desk or inside your DAW, tweaking an EQ, boosting it by a dB, and you figure that's not enough. Like you feel like you're making a difference. It's getting you want to get a little brighter. It's getting a little bit brighter, but it's not quite enough. You can push it a little further. So you boost it by a dB and a half, and you say, "That's better." But still, I'm looking for a little bit more edge. Let's move the frequency from you know 4K to 8K, and let's goose it up by 2 dB. Okay, I think that's more than what I want. But this is really subtle. Let me just jack it up. And now you boost it by 6 dB, and you say. Oh my goodness, I'm on EQ on a totally different instrument. I'm not doing anything to the sound. I'm not changing it at all. I'm listening to the sound in solo and I'm EQing some other sound. But I was convinced and I heard and I knew there was a difference in the beginning when I was tweaking that EQ. And it took a little while for it to dawn on you and me that something was off. This happens to all of us. Because no matter how powerful we train our ears to be, our minds and the stories we tell ourselves are always more powerful still. 
That is not to say that people cannot hear half dB changes in EQ and dB changes in EQ at the right level and in the right context and the right frequency. People can, can demonstrate that they can hear half dB changes in EQ. That is totally possible. But it's also equally possible that you can hear differences that aren't there. So how do we reconcile these two things? What do we do about it? Man, that's an interesting question and question we're going to keep on asking ourselves for the rest of the episode. I want to give you another story about this high-res audio stuff because I was confronted with enough data. Data changed my mind on high-res audio and led me to believe and understand that super-duper high sample rates don't really matter or make a difference because all that a, a super high sample rate can do is change the maximum highest frequency you can record or play back. It does absolutely nothing for fidelity below that highest frequency that you can record or play back. So if you were to take a 1K sine wave and record it at, you know, 48K or 96K, doesn't make any difference about how 1K is going to sound. What will be different is that with your 88K sample rate or 96K sample rate, you could record or play back 40K, which no one's ever going to hear, which you can't do with the, the lower sample rate. So just getting that out of the way, that stuff persuaded me. But the bigger thing that persuaded me was all the double blind listening tests that have been done, where you take trained listeners, even including golden eared engineers, play them a 320 kilobits per second MP3 file, and then play them any higher resolution audio file and ask them in a proper double blind test, which one is which or which one sounds better. And the results are no better than a coin flip. So I was persuaded by that kind of data that there might be something here to high-res audio being super overrated. But this isn't an episode about high-res audio, so I'm not going to talk about much more. But I, I do want to give you an example because I did a test on my old blog, Trust Me, I'm a Scientist, the facetiously titled Trust Me, I'm a Scientist. Most of those stories have now been poured over to sonicscoop.com where you can find a lot of my writing and uh, videos and all that stuff. And we did this thing when Neil Young was a while back uh, getting behind this thing called the Pono Player, a failed, ultimately failed high-res audio player that people didn't want because it turns out that high-res audio files are something like the super high-res ones, like 20 times bigger <laughs> and require for, for no perceptible benefit and require, you know, 20 times the storage capacity and, you know, 20 times the battery life and all this other stuff. So for many reasons it, it didn't take off but when he was promoting this thing we did this article with our readers you know tens of thousands of people read this and took an online audio poll we did where i said here's a high res audio file and here's a 256 kilobits per second mp3 file you guys download them i've changed them both into wave files so you can't tell which is which unless you cheat and people could have cheated and when I was shuffling these around, you know, I'd come to the intellectual conclusion that, you know, it doesn't make a difference. These are probably going to sound basically the same. Um, even though 256, arguably, maybe some people can hear a difference at 256. It's a little bit debatable, but it's possible. I listened to these two different files, the full resolution wave and the, the relatively high resolution MP3. And I listened to them back to back when I knew which was which. And I said, oh, man, everyone's going to pass this test. I can hear the difference between this 256 kilobits per second MP3 file and this full resolution WAV file, this high resolution WAV file. I can hear these differences. Everyone else is going to hear them too. And I just made the case that maybe this stuff doesn't matter. I'm going to be so embarrassed when the results come back in like, you know, 
80% of our readers get it right or 75% or some percent higher than chance get it right. But then something funny happened. I changed the names of the file so I didn't know which was which. And all these differences that I could articulate, that I knew I could hear, and I could articulate, I could tell you exactly what I was hearing in the differences between the two of them. Oh, the change in the transients and the change in the frequency response. And as soon as I didn't know which was which anymore, all of these descriptors I could give you, they just evaporated like it was a mirage. I heard, knew that I was hearing a difference between these two file types. And then as soon as they were jumbled up, so I was effectively listening double blind, these concrete differences I knew I could hear with my ears just evaporated. They just went away. They were just gone. And it's an amazing experience to have. And I always chuckle when people write to me to say, well, you just can't hear the difference, but we can. I always like to ask these people like, oh, well, have you done a double blind test? Like what, and what did you use to do the double blind test? Did you use an ABX tester or like how, how did you do the double blind test that allowed you to discern whether you could actually hear that difference? And like, well, I didn't do one of those, but I know I can hear the difference. And I say, I, I know I was there. I was there with you. So this is why, you know, I annoyed some people by titling that episode, Why High-Res Audio is Dumb. I've since changed it because a lot of people thought that I was calling them dumb. I don't think people are dumb for, you know, making a case for high-res audio. I think there are things yet that they haven't learned, experienced, or encountered. And once they learn, experience, or encounter those things, they often or I think usually change their minds in my experience. And I get this. It's a tricky thing because experience is what led them to the belief that they have. Experience with, I heard the difference, I knew it was there, led them to their decisions. But sometimes those experiences are lying to us. I'm going to give you another story here that I hope will hammer this point further home. And then we'll go into some other related points as well. There's a study I like to bring up a lot that involves wine. And in this study, the researchers would give two different glasses of wine to each participant. If you've been listening to every single podcast episode, you've probably heard me say this story once before, but it's a good one to revisit if you've heard it before. Most of you probably haven't. Most of you, I'm guessing, haven't heard every single podcast episode, but you should. They're all awesome. Anyway, the researchers give every participant two glasses of wine. One of them is from a $20 bottle of wine. And one of them is from a $200 bottle of wine. And they ask each of the subjects to rate which wine they like better. And overwhelmingly, something like 80-85%, depends on which version of the study, they say they like the more expensive wine better. And they give reasons for that choice. And they try to describe the differences. And overwhelmingly, people prefer the more expensive wine to the less expensive one. But then it turns out, haha, joke's on you, they were both from the same bottle. But the interesting thing there isn't just that, oh, people are dumb. And that's, that's not what the study is about. It's not about being dumb. And it's also not that, oh, they're just trying to seem sophisticated and impress the researchers. Because that's not what happens either. They actually put people in like brain scan machines and did this same study again. And they found that when they gave people the quote unquote $200 bottle of wine, the glass from the $200 bottle of wine, their pleasure centers in their brain lit up more than for the pretend $20 bottle of wine. 
They actually felt and perceived a real difference between the two glasses of wine. Even though the contents in the glass were exactly the same, they really did perceive a difference between the two. So again, as powerful as we can train our ears to be, as powerful as we can train our tastes to be, our minds and the stories we tell ourselves are even more powerful still. And it's just undeniable. But I want to give you some caveats here. That people, trained listeners, can hear also extremely subtle differences. So there's a dichotomy here. I remember doing a double-blind taste test on apples. I talked about this in one other podcast episode. For Again, for you super fans, don't blame me. I'll make it super brief. Where a chef friend of mine, she cut up all these different varieties of apples, regular supermarket ones, heirloom you know, varieties, and all sorts of different apples. And she peeled the skin off of them so we couldn't see the difference in a way that's not a perfectly scientific test. What if some of the taste is in the skin? But anyway, she peeled the skin off of all of them so we couldn't see the difference between them. We didn't even know which were green and which were red. And she'd write the name on each of them on the bottom of the plate, and then the plate would be turned over so no one could see the name of them. So and then they were mixed up, so it was a double-blind taste test. And we had to evaluate and say which ones were our favorites. And I went there saying, well, I already know what my favorite apples are. My two favorite types of apples for red apples are Baldwin apples. It's an heirloom variety. It was replaced by the horrible, atrocious monstrosity of an apple known as the Red Delicious, which should not exist. Uh, Baldwin apple used to be like the jam back in the Dizzy before, I think it was like the 1930s, that like a whole really bad winter like wiped out all the Baldwin apples and they got replaced by Red Delicious and it's like a travesty that still hurts me inside uh, even though I wasn't alive to experience it. And then I said my favorite for the green apples is um, Golden Russet. And she said, oh, we'll see. We'll see about that. I said, no, I, I can taste them. I can distinguish the, my favorite apples. I've tasted a lot of apples before. Those two are my favorite types. Okay, sure. You cocky bastard. Okay. And we did the taste testing and I rated my favorite apple in the reds and my favorite apple in the greens. We actually did separate them, even though they were peeled. We separated them into two tastings, one red and one green. My favorite from the reds was Baldwin. And my favorite from the greens turned out to be Golden Russet. And the one that I rated the worst of the red apples was my least favorite apple, Red Delicious. Not knowing which was which, double blind. To some people... They're not going to know these differences. They haven't tasted enough apples to know the difference. Why have I tasted so many apples? I don't know. Let's not again let's say focus on audio. But the same thing happens with audio. And I wanted to step back from audio for a second because sometimes it helps give us perspective on these things because the same thing can happen with different devices. But here's one of the other things, all right? If we made an apple pie, like the differences might not be as big potentially, as if we were eating apples separately, right? So when things go into the mix, maybe some of those subtle differences matter, but maybe they don't matter as much. But there's something to be said the other direction. If you're making all of the right choices while you're cooking something, and you're making great choices in every single ingredient, maybe that also has a cumulative payoff. So where's the balance there as well? That's a hard question to answer concretely, but I think we'll explore it just a little bit more here. The other thing I want to say is that the same kind of thing can happen with, say, something like converters. Different converters can absolutely sound different, but we don't always attribute like the correct why to it. Almost all of the time that different converters sound different is because of the analog 
front end in the converter. It has nothing to do with the actual conversion. Actually, in many cases, a lot of the converters out there use the exact same like conversion chips. Like they literally come from the same factory and like they're the same model, yet the different converters sound different. Uh, there's no doubt in my mind that I could tell you the difference between, say, a very colorful converter, like one of the Burl converters, from an exceptionally clean converter in a blind, double blind listening test. I know this because I've done them and I've been able to hear the difference. But almost all of that is coming from the analog front end differences in these converters rather than the actual conversion. I've also heard the difference between different sample rates in the same converter. I haven't done that double blind, but I'm pretty sure I could hear the difference. And that, though, is most likely having to do with differences in the anti-aliasing filter. If you use an analog anti-aliasing filter, those can sound different at different sample rates. It's not the sample rate itself that does it, but that's something we talk about more in the sample rate episodes and the high-res audio episodes, and I won't bore you with it again. Hopefully, I'll put a link somewhere here where you can go click or go search. So very subtle differences can also be discerned double-blind. So what it comes down to is if you want to make like a major proclamation about whether or not you can hear an extremely subtle difference. The only way to do it is with a double-blind listening test. Probably the best devices for this are ABX testers, and the way they work is this. You play sound A. You play sound B. You don't know which is which. You can play them as many times as you want, and there's also a sound X. Is X A or is X B? Is X, the sound X, the same as sound A, or sound X the same as sound B? Obviously, you could imagine circumstances where you can absolutely hear this difference. Like, imagine you play sound A, it's a dry vocal. Sound B is a vocal with, like, a bejesus worth of reverb on it. There's just a ton of reverb on this B vocal. Then we play X, and sound X appears to have a ton of reverb on it. Hmm, it's probably B, right? So you can get how this would work. There are other ways to design proper double-blind tests, but these are one of the most useful ones, and they can at least tell whether you can consciously distinguish a difference. There are arguments to be made for, well, what about unconscious differences? What about differences you don't even know you're perceiving? And we can get into a whole episode about that sometime when we revisit uh, these resolution debates, which I don't want to do all the time. For some reason, those episodes are popular, uh, but uh, I, I get way too many comments from them, and there's just too many people on a debate the same points that I've already answered in the video and the very few points that haven't been answered I should do in some other video. But I hope you get the idea that that is a way to actually discern these little differences. And you got to take your mind and the stories you're telling yourselves out of the equation if you want to be precise. But that's not what you should always do. There are a lot of occasions in which it's going to hurt you to do double-blind listening. And I actually have respect and admiration for some of these people, amazing people. Joe Ciccarelli, who's a fantastic producer engineer, you know, wrote me saying, I like working in high-res audio and I'm not going to stop. And tons of respect to him because the guy's an artist as a mixer. Like, he makes amazing choices. Now, some of the choices that he makes in a mix might not matter that much. And some of the choices he makes might matter a ton. And I have a feeling he's such a great talent 
whatever sample rate or bit depth he was working at, even if they did make a difference, I'm not persuaded that they do within certain parameters that would go into more detail in other episodes. Even if he made like totally different choices about what converter he liked best and made a record with his least favorite converter, like it would still sound great. <laughs> it would just make it sound great, you know? So this is one of the thing, things like when you're actually mixing, when you're in there in the weeds, actually working on this stuff, you sometimes just need to make choices like whether or not they're perfectly scientific or not. It doesn't matter. Like a, a, an even better example is Michael Brower. We had him on for MixCon and he did a mix. And in the live Q&A, someone said, Mr. Brower, I noticed that you were using the Plugin Alliance. I'm so sorry to be imitating you. This is just why I imagined someone who would sound like this. You're probably actually really cool, the person who asked this question, but we'll pretend that someone uncool asked it. Mr. Brower, I noticed that um, you were using the Plugin Alliance um, a black box quite a bit, but when you were using that saturator, it raised the volume of the track. How did you know it actually sounded better when you put the saturator on because it could have just been loudness fooling you into thinking that it sounded better. And I'm so sorry to have made fun of you, but it's kind of funny because the man's mixing. He's in the middle of a mix. Like maybe there's a chance that if he just raised the volume, that maybe that would have helped and maybe that would have been enough on that particular track and he didn't need the saturator on it. Maybe that's possible. It's more likely with an effect like a saturator, it's doing something. But even if that saturator only gave him a volume boost and it gave him exactly what he needed and like it sounded right, like done, move on, let's go. Like we're mixing. What we're doing is we're feeling, responding, hearing, processing, making changes and evaluating and saying, does it sound better? Yes, let's keep going. Does it sound better? No, let's try something else. Does it sound better now? Yes, let's keep going. Nowhere in that process of actually doing a mix does it make sense to stop and say, this sounds better, but does it really sound better for the reasons that I thought it sounded better? Let me go back and check to see if that's the case. If it was just the volume boost or the sound. Like, no, like if you solve the problem and like it works better, it works better and you're done and you move on. Like you don't need to make scientific decisions and second guess everything you're doing while you're mixing. Now, that said, there is a place for doing some of this kind of level match listening. It would be useful and instructive, perhaps, to listen to a new processor when you get it and kind of use it on everything and do some tests where you're level matching it so you can distinguish the differences that's really making separate from the volume changes. But when you're actually working, that's not the time for that. When you're actually trying to get through a mix efficiently, with passion, with feeling for the music, with following the emotional arc of the song and trying to enhance it, that's not the time and place to put on your scientist hat. It's just not. Now, there are a couple of other ways your ears can lie to you, and they're relatively more minor compared to this major one that we've spent so much of this episode on. But here are those other ways. One, your ears are not even. You do not hear the same out of both ears. Everyone's hearing is asymmetrical in much the same way that nobody's eyebrows are perfectly symmetrical. No one's nostrils are perfectly symmetrical. No one's lips are perfectly symmetrical. No one's hands are perfectly symmetrical. I think my middle finger on my left hand here is a little longer than the one on my right. Like nobody is perfectly 
symmetrical. And neither of your ears. So you do not hear the same out of both ears. So that's a puzzling thing when you're working with like panning. Your ears can lie to you because someone else might be hearing this and their ears may be asymmetrical in a different way. You may have more high frequency in your right than in your left, or you may have more 3K in your right than in your left, and the end listener may have a different quirk or a totally opposite quirk. Their hearing may be flipped from yours. So how do you deal with that one? Well, listening in mono is one good way, and that's one of the reasons to always reference things in mono. There's other reasons to always reference things in mono too, but that's one of them. It's also a good reason to consider at some point flipping in your mix and master the left and right, just swapping them and just hearing the mix from that perspective. And this is especially essential when you're trying to do one of the things I like to do, which is contrasting sounds in the left and right and kind of getting extra width and really enveloping people to make sure they're not too quirkily off. The mono check and the stereo flip check can be really helpful. Another thing is high-frequency hearing. We lose it. We all lose it as we age. And one of the ironies is that some of the best mixers out there and some of your favorite mixers may hear less well than you, but they can still mix better than you because they listen better than you. Because there's a lot of really successful mixers who are in their 40s, 50s, 60s, some even in their 70s, doing great work that some of the greatest mastering engineers there are probably in the 60s and 70s, some of the top people, and they still do tremendous work, even though they probably can't hear 16K, 15K, might not be able to hear 14K. A lot of them might start losing some stuff above 10K, you know, as you start to get old enough and there may be dips elsewhere. But fortunately, music is not a hearing art. It's a listening art. It's not about just hearing. It's about listening and interpreting. So how do you get around this issue? One is to know your monitors inside and out. Two is to know your references inside and out, to know what other music that sounds great actually sounds like. The third is to use a frequency analyzer. So you can just double check in the extreme highs that things aren't pushed much more than they should be visually. I actually experienced this one time. I was doing an attended mastering session. This is so embarrassing. I shouldn't admit it. It's one of these things that will kill your credibility. Like most people who work in like music and audio and sound aren't going to be this honest with you because there's so much to lose by being this honest. Like I just told you, my left and right ears aren't the same. But I'm able to say that confidently because I know yours aren't either. (laughs) I said, you know, I don't think I can hear the difference between 320 kilobit per second MP3s and any other high resolution. But again, I can say that with confidence because apparently no one else can according to like every actually properly controlled double blind study with trained listeners. But here's one where, you know, I don't really have a way out so much. It was just a failure on my part. I was, I mastered a record for a younger guy and me and the mix engineer. And the mix engineer was hey, probably 27, 28 at the time. And I'm probably at that time, 35 or something, 36. I might have even been 34. I don't know, somewhere. I was in my mid-30s and the mix engineer was in his late 20s. And we were listening back to the master I had just done. And everyone said, man, it sounds really good. It sounds so much better. It sounds really good. I mean, this is now getting up there with like some of our favorite records. Like we're listening to it next to some of our favorite records and like it just belongs right there on the shelf. It's really gone far a long way from the mix in a good way. 
And, you know, the artist who was really, who's probably 19, maybe, maybe he's 20. He's really nodding his hands like, yeah, I really dig it. But what's that clicking? And me and the mixer kind of looked at each other and were like, what clicking? He's like that right there. Don't you hear it? That high frequency that? And we're both like, um, no. <laughs> and I brought up a frequency analyzer. And lo and behold, it was like 19 and a half K. There was like a click, intermittent, occasional click. And I think it was like a clocking issue or something. And kind of shut everything down, power things back up, looked in the frequency analyzer again. And we were like, glad we caught that. Because like neither of us old fogies who are in like our mid to late 20s and 30s could hear this sound that this kid could. 19 or 20 year old relative to us anyway, kid. Good thing we caught that. Well, that was one of the things that inspired me to always look at a frequency analyzer on every single master that I do ever to look for those kinds of things. Because I actually can hear pretty well for a guy who's almost 40, not quite 40. I'm starting to get a little silver here in the sides. I'm not sure if I should color it. Should I pull a Warren Hewitt and start coloring my sideburns when they turn gray? I don't know. You guys told me. Tell me. I hope that was buried enough in this podcast episode. Not to offend anybody. But um, I really will consider if you guys tell me when these goes go gray, just like here, whether I should dye it. You know, This is another one of these funny things that people don't talk about. Anyway, we just have such youth obsession in our art, right? Anyway, from then on, I always ended up checking because I can hear up to 17 and a half K. I know for sure. And I think out of one of my ears, I can hear maybe 18 K if it's loud enough. And I'm almost 40. And that's really good for someone who's almost 40. Um, but it's not perfect. <laughs> And there's a lot of people who have spent a lot more time playing on stage and in bands than I have. Like I did spend a lot of my teens and 20s playing super loud music, but I did not spend a lot of my 30s playing super loud music and, you know, blowing my ears out without earplugs at rock shows. So I can hear relatively high, but there's a lot of people in our field who can't, especially the musicians, because, you know, you're standing this far away from cymbals like night after night or whatever, and it just goes. And next thing you know, you can't hear 13K. And that's not uncommon. And that's probably going to happen to you eventually, even if you take care of your ears when you get up there into your 60s and 70s. So the frequency analyzer thing can help. And this is another great reason to have interns and assistants who are younger than you. Well, I hope this has been a joyful episode of the Sonic Scoop podcast for you. A little bit randy. It took us a little while to get through that first big important thing into all this other stuff. But I think there's going to be like maybe one edit in this entire episode. And those are always my favorites. Whether or not they're the most popular, I have no idea. You guys tell me, did you like this one? Do you like ranty, long-winded Justin? Or should we do more of the tight little nuggets? It's a podcast. It's supposed to keep you not only informed but entertained as well over reasonably long periods of time while you commute to work or do the dishes or mow your lawn or something like that. Or I don't know how people use these podcasts. What do you do when you're listening to this podcast? You tell me in the comments down below. Speaking of comments, tell me in the comments down below, have you ever experienced this kind of thing yourself in your own life? Are there ways in which your hearing is flawed that now you feel comfortable to admit because I've admitted it? And are there any stories that you guys can share down there? I'd love to hear your ideas, thoughts, and anecdotes on this one. Thanks for hanging out with me for this episode. If you've enjoyed hearing me talk for this long, or at least could stand it and figure that I have a thing or two that are worth knowing, 
then I would highly encourage you to check out my full-length courses, either Mixing Breakthroughs or Mastering Demystified. They are absolutely wonderful, money-back guarantee, and they will absolutely help you get better at mixing and at mastering. They are not designed to just entertain, but to actually make you better with exercises that will improve the quality of your work, which I don't think exist in all courses. So it's actually about making you better, not just about me mousing around on the screen, which is huge. You're going to get better. Mixingbreakthroughs.com, masteringdemystified.com. You can also get some free stuff from me if you're not ready to make the leap. They would include such things as my free workshop, The Five Habits of Every Great Mixer, which you can get at sonicscoop.com slash mixhabits. That's sonicscoop.com slash mixhabits. There are certain things that great mixers do in every single mix, and it's like true across the board, across the how many scores upon scores upon dozens of great mixers, mastering engineers, all that that have I interviewed, and these are the common threads. Check that out at sonicscoop.com slash mixhabits. You can also check out sonicscoop.com slash mastering 101 for a free primer on mastering. That's sonicscoop.com slash mastering 101. And also, big shout out and thanks to you for watching. Like and subscribe and to our sponsors for sponsoring, including Sound Toys, making some of my favorite mixing effects in the known universe. Check out anything they make for free over at soundtoys.com for 30 days. Also, Arturia, making some of the best sounding analog soft synths in the universe and the really new Pigments 3 that just came out. It's the third update to their Pigments Additive Synthesizer, which is just capable of pretty incredible sounds. Also, big thanks to Focusrite and the Focusrite Plugin Collective, where they are often giving away new plugins and just making some of the best bang for the buck interfaces on the planet Earth. This has been Justin Coletti of Sonic Scoop. Thanks for hanging out with me for this episode of the Sonic Scoop Podcast. See you next time. Hurry into Ram Power Days and experience the raw power of the Ram 3500 with available best-in-class torque and towing among 350-3500 pickups when properly equipped. Strap yourself in for one powerful ride in the Ram TRX with the most horsepower of any gas pickup ever built. Or the Ram 1500, awarded number one in driver appeal among light-duty pickups by J.D. Power three years in a row. Hurry into Ram Power Days going on now. For J.D. Power 2022 U.S. award information, visit jdpower.com awards.